Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 486 for October 4th, 2023. My guest today is Mike Kading, the CEO of a company called Norhart. Mike and his company are dedicated to revolutionizing the housing industry using lean principles. They're disrupting old norms and forging new paths. They aspire to narrow the labor productivity gap that exists between the manufacturing and construction sectors. So I hope you will will listen. I think you'll find it to be thought-provoking and inspiring. Even if you don't uh, work in uh, construction, there's a lot to learn from Mike and his approach. So you can learn more about him and his company. Look for links in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 486. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Lean Blog Interviews. My guest today is Mike Kading. He is the CEO of Norhart. They're a company that designs, builds, and rents apartments. They're transforming the way this is done by incorporating technologies and techniques, including lean. That's why we're why we're here today. They're um, techniques that we, uh, me and the listeners, we all realize have revolutionized other industries. So they have seen improved quality and reduced cost of housing. And they're committed, additionally, when it comes to mission and purpose, to solving America's housing shortage and affordability crisis. And in doing so, they hope to improve the way we all live. So, uh, Mike, thank you for being here. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me. The mission that that you and Norhart have, I mean, it's it's a, it, I mean, I, I mean, this in, in a, as, as a positive, like it's a high-reaching, ambitious mission that that reminds me of the way. Toyota talks about benefit to society and mobility. Is is that coincidental? Like thinking that 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 sort of came to be from your side? Yeah. So the the vision to solve America's housing affordability crisis that's something that evolved for us over time. Uh, and certainly, we work with Toyota. We're inspired by them, uh, but they didn't actually lead to that uh, inspiration. Uh-huh. So I'm sure that that was maybe part of the connection. Then we'll we'll get into this um, more deeply of why Toyota and TSSC would choose yeah. to partner up with you and Norhart. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun, you know, the, this this passion to solve America's housing affordability crisis. Like it's crazy. You look at the world out there, and so many different industries. And we were just talking about healthcare before this, and there's the world of manufacturing. And everyone on this call, you guys are like my people, the the listeners here, the the lean people. Like you guys have revolutionized so many different spaces and made so many significant improvements in society. When we look at the world of construction, it's been mostly flatlined. I mean, over the past 60 years, manufacturing has improved labor productivity by 760%, but construction's done only 10%. It's terrible. And so for the most part, we're learning the lessons that your viewers have learned and applying it to the world of construction. It's remarkable to see those kinds of results. It seems like what you're describing is something that happens a lot in healthcare. People get really caught up on the way we've always done it. Yeah. Hey, you don't understand. This is the way we've always done it. Like how how do you and your position as, you know, a CEO of a company help challenge or encourage everybody to challenge the way we've always done it? Yeah, our industry is very much rooted in that. It's 
my dad did it this way, my granddad did it this way, my great-granddad did it this way, and by golly, I'm doing it this way as well. There's like a rough-and-tumble, like hardened kind of stereotypical person in the world of construction, and that's a hard shell to break. And so what we did is we didn't work to break it. Instead, we looked to hire people that are willing to be different than the norm. Um, so a lot of our energy, at least initially, goes into finding the very best people. And unfortunately, the world of construction, that sometimes means in certain positions that it's less experienced people, but are willing to invent and experiment and try new stuff. They have the right personality, the mentality for that continuous improvement. So foundationally, it's getting the people right first, and then you can inspire them to make the change. But I think it's really, really hard try to take the wrong people and get them to change. Because even if they nod and say, yeah, I'll do it, they're not giving you your heart and your passion and your soul, which is really what's required to make it work. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about other companies where it's said that, you know, they, they don't want to hire people with previous industry experience. I think this might have been true at Southwest. You know, it's this question of like Toyota when they started in Kentucky. Do they want to hire people who had previously worked at other automakers and had moved from other states, or are they locating in a place where they can hire for, I don't know what you would call it, um, attitude, aptitude, willingness to learn, and then invest in those people. Um, so let me, let me turn it back to you though, Mike, with you and, and Norhart. Like, tell us a little bit more about how you find and identify and select, and then how do you make sure you're maximizing the potential of those people that you've brought in? Yeah. Uh, to take it one quick step back, you know, my own history is that my dad passed away relatively young and my parents started this business. And so I took over uh, at a fairly young age. And I think looking back, that was sort of some of the, there was a blessing in that because I didn't know what I was doing, right? I didn't know the way things were supposed <laughs> to be done, yeah, which enabled right. us to start asking questions and changing things. I had mm -hmm. no idea how hard those changes would be. And maybe now yeah. with my experience, I would say, I don't want to take that path. Um, but as far as finding the best people, um, one of the first things we did once we understood how critical that was is we ended up hiring on 14 recruiters. At the time, we were only a 100-person company. We hired 14 recruiters. Let that sink in. That was a tremendous investment for where we were at at that size. But it really became clear that in order to change this industry, we needed literally the best people. And when we say best, we really mean like flying people in from other states to come work in the week. Uh, we have one, give you some caliber, example of the caliber. We have one employee who Steve Jobs announces the iPhone in 2007. Steve Jobs walks off stage and this employee follows that presentation on that same stage following Steve Jobs. It's that kind of caliber and energy of person that we look to find. So I think getting the right recruiting infrastructure in place. The next thing is recognizing that the best people don't apply for jobs. Uh, they already have a job. <laughs> and so our team then actually goes and identifies all the different companies that are competitors and who's working where, identify the best people, build relationships with those people over time, and then try to attract them in. And then there's a lot about building the right culture. Right? I think culture is fundamentally about hiring the right people. But beyond that, it's things like identifying and just, uh, and enlisting what your values, your purpose, your mission are. As a CEO, every Monday morning, I am there doing orientation with the new hires. I do follow-up orientation. I do engagement meetings. I am very 
much involved in that world so I can uh, uh, to shape that that culture. Another interesting thing to mention here is the best people aren't necessarily the most experienced. Depends on the position. Some positions you need that. But what we look at is for any particular employee, are they on the journey to become best in the world at their niche? Mm -hmm. Right? So that doesn't mean to be there today, but they've got to have an amazing trajectory. They have incredible abilities and passion and drive and energy to fight to the level of becoming best in the world of what they do. Mm. So that gives you a flair for how we think about hiring. And I mean, I I imagine there's a lot of screening or there like assessments or things that people fill out. Is it through interviewing to find that, that fits those mindsets, if you will, it's not going to be listed on someone's resume. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, and we're literally finding working to find the unicorns, and they're very few and far between. Um, for ten thousand applications, we may only hire a hundred people or less. <clears throat> uh, so the recruiters do the first round screening, and so they're really looking at values, culture fit. There's some basic skills uh, question that they do uh, an evaluation. Then depending on the position, the managers make it involved at the next stage. But I think the one unique thing that we bring in um, that's a bit different is for many of the positions, not all, but many, will hire somebody on on a trial basis. So you've already passed the basic screening, bring you on on a trial basis, and then you work with the team for at least two weeks, and the team evaluates you and how they actually like working with you. And it's actually your coworkers that sit down at the end of the two weeks, they go through all the values, they go through your skills, go through your passion, say, do you line up? What's amazing is when you built a team of A players, they don't want to deal with anyone less than an A player. And so they are very quick to say, nope, don't want them on the team, don't want them on the team. And our hiring rate out of those trial periods is fairly low, but that's how we really ensure that the people we get are incredible. And then Beyond just the hiring, we're very, very thoughtful on how we do the evaluation of who stays in the company long term. Because mm. uh, we don't always get the hiring right. And we got to be quick about letting people go that are not the right fit. I mean, it seems like there's opportunity for different feedback loops there. PDCA yeah. or PDSA cycles of thinking, okay, if that initial filter um, is letting people through who the team is rejecting for some reason, does it go, is is there a loop back then to change some of the filtering along the way or what's a, we, before we started recording, Mike and I were talking, um, you know, a couple of emails that I tried sending to Mike got blocked, right? So there's, you know, not, not to, it's an awkward analogy, but, you know, there, there's <laughs> the, the false positive of letting an email through when it's spam or letting an employee through when the team's going to say no, not a fit. And then there's the false reject. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, um, you don't always know, like I was able to tell you, oh, my emails got rejected. But, you know, back to that point of um, it would be harder to know if the filter is blocking employees who would really be a good fit, you know. It sure could be. Um, The way I look at it, though, the amount of cost involved in hiring the wrong person is tremendous. Uh, Not just in dollars, but in just wasted time and driving up new initiatives. And so um, I'd rather 
as, as hard as it is to say, I'd rather make a mistake in not hiring the right person than to make a mistake in hiring the wrong person. Mm, sure. Even with the ability to correct for a quote unquote bad fit hire after some period, after the initial two weeks, is that kind of an ongoing assessment that takes place if a supervisor or a manager or somebody detects or does a team sort of at some point, if you will, pull the figurative and on cord to say, uh, hey, there's yeah. an issue? Uh, it varies depending yeah. on the, the source of like, there's an issue here. It comes from the team sometimes brings that up. Sometimes it's the managers. Um, the the bar that we use, we actually stole from Netflix, but I love it. It's called the keeper test, which is that if a particular employee were to leave, how hard would you fight to keep them? If the answer is I would fight tooth and nail to keep them, awesome, they're the right person. But if it's anything less than that, it's not good enough. And so for many companies, they know to get rid of the bad people. They know they want the best people. Many companies are okay with the average. We're just not. There's nothing wrong with the average. There's many great places to work. This is not what we need to change this industry. And we're very upfront with that. Like that's a whole chunk of our orientation is talking about that. And I think to do that well, though, you have to support people well on the way out, right? A great severance, really respectful exit plan. Sure, a sure. lot of time people actually get noticed that we're going to let them go. So they have time to find a new job, um, <clears throat> that whole process as well. So yeah. it's, it's continuous um, evaluation in that regard. Um, yeah. with everyone and, and and occasionally every you know, few months or a year or so i might come down and say all right guys let's really think about this right now like where is everyone on your team do you feel that they're where they need to be yeah and as you pointed out this can all be done respectfully yeah it's a great thing to hear when it comes back then to culture and the mindsets and just not just what are we doing but but how are we treating people it's good yeah. to that piece well, of it we, what I fight to do, it doesn't always work out this way, but I've got a, quite a few cases it has. I want that person to be happier with us after firing them than beforehand. Mm. How could that even work, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. a few, few things, right? If you give them, in many cases, we can give people notice so they can find their own job. They get a severance. They get paid on top of all that. And then if we help them find a new job that's a better fit for them, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're actually happier, Right. Because our jobs are pretty demanding. We're trying to change the world. But if that's not your spirit, if that's not your energy, you just want a you know, nine to five kind of basic run-of-the-mill job, let's help you find that. And now you're going to be super happy in your new role. And you should be happy that we moved you to that position. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so tell us a little bit about the growth. You mentioned 100 employees. You're at how many employees today? Uh, ballpark of around 250. Okay. Yeah. So there's, and, and there's a lot of growth in the future, I'm sure. Yeah. Projected growth. Like, and then there's this question of how do you forecast that? Or how do you plan for that? Or hire, you know, imagine there's this process. We come back and talk about the business a little bit at Norhart. Um, is, are, are these projects known well enough in advance? Like if you win a project, you can then hire accordingly. How do you find that balance of, you know, supply of talent and your, your demand or need for talent? Yeah. So we're trying to solve for housing affordability and that makes you redesign the system in so many different ways. And one example, one of the volatilities you mentioned was uh, a demand for people to build a building for them. Okay. That causes headache in the hiring process. It causes extra waste in the fact we have to have capital to handle the like time off that people have to have as a result of not having a job. So what do we do to solve that? 
we build the buildings for ourselves. So we can have that very consistent pipeline because when we're renting out to residents, that demand is way, way, way more consistent mm -hmm. than the demand of developers wanting us to build a building. So instead of working with a developer, I mean, there's still a process, imagine, of um, you're working with cities, you have to, the project has to be approved more so yeah. than winning the business, I guess, is a difference between you and, and other builders. Yeah, it's a similar process in that regard. We have a team that sources and finds new sites and then work on the design of that site. They go through the city council, planning commission, the entitlements of that project, and then work to get approval on that. That then becomes an approved project that hops in our pipeline for the team to just consistently flow from one project to the next. There's a word you probably don't hear a lot in construction there, flow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, Big it's, it's so true. I mean, I, I see trades all the time. They come in and be like, dude, I want an entire floor cleared out so I can just work on this floor, come in and then leave, right? There's no flow there. It's an up and down and back and forth. And uh, so, yeah, we've definitely applied lean techniques. We take the building, break it into small chunks, and then... Each team is moving through the building every five hours right now uh, between units. And so if you're an electrician, you're just wiring uh, one unit to the next, to the next, to the next, a very consistent load out. I will say it's really hard to do that. <laughs> and we're dealing with the mud and the pain of that right now. But our dream is to drop that down to an hour or even 30 minutes where a new apartment unit's produced that quickly. Yeah. So there's this question I imagine then of, I mean, this is really getting into the details of work design and work balancing and flow of like, what's the cycle time of different jobs yeah. of who's doing what? And then you've touched on this idea of, well, how do we eliminate waste? Like, I know you're not trying to say like, Hey, just do it faster. You're yep. eliminating waste and, and balancing these different trades and these different jobs and specialties to create flow. Is that what you, you, you said something here was really difficult. Is that, the yeah. difficult thing to get it to flow, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah, because you got to get everything working in sync. And if any one thing gets out of sync, this is true with any lean process. It can create havoc on everything else, especially when everything becomes more and more tightly coupled as that chain gets tighter and tighter what you're doing. Uh, there's there's cases you can add buffer and stuff between different uh, jobs, but eliminating that buffer actually helps improve the productivity of the site. Um, so yeah, our entire building is broken down into about 120 different tasks, everything from the dirt all the way to handing up the key. And then uh, every one of those tasks are being done every five hours for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some things that are off batch still that we're working on. Another really big, interesting challenge, this is true again with any lean process, is just material flow, right? Mm -hmm. Delivering, I mean... Think about how big an apartment building is. This isn't just a product anymore. This is just tons and tons and tons of materials that now have to be delivered to the right person at every five hours in just the right amount, not too much, not too little. And so that's another huge problem that we're working on right now. And part of the solution is we've uh, we've started expanding all the way down that supply chain, even mm. to becoming our own manufacturers in some cases. Wow. And then there's this question of, you know, so you're working with Toyota and TSSC has been helping you. You mentioned buffers, right? Not, you know, there, there's this, I think, pragmatic Toyota view of maintaining flow, finding the right balance of, you know, just-in-time inventory, like an occasional stoppage, 
creates tension to improve, um, where a lot of organizations would want to just buffer everything to where there's 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 never uh, a stoppage. How do I mean? How do they help you think through um, materials? Uh, I'm sure when you've got long lead times or questions about availability, um, help help us understand the thinking where just in time doesn't mean like in a dogmatic way zero inventory. Yeah, it was one of my first questions when we met with Toyota. I said, "Dude, you guys just in time inventory, so you don't have any inventory, right?" Like, how did you? I was this was during the chip shortage with their vehicles, and I said, "How are how are you dealing with the chip shortage then?" Said, Mike, just in time doesn't mean no inventory. Yeah, right. <laughs> it means being really thoughtful with that design. And so when we started looking at before this even happened, our different supply chains, the chips were one of those points of risk of failure. And so we identified that, and therefore we we actually built up a stockpile to handle the fact that, that was a key failure point in our system. And so they didn't have as big of an impact, at least at that time. Uh, with the chip shortage, and that really opened my eyes. And so, uh, yeah, for us, like we will buy container loads of materials out of other countries like China. The best that they can get me is maybe a plus or minus several week yeah, window right. of when it's going to show up. But I now have to transfer that, and it's a huge sum of materials into every five hours. And so that's one of the key things we're working on is, okay, we take the materials, deliver it to the site. And the idea right now is that there's this area on site where we've got the materials built up, a, a small inventory. And then there's a team that takes inventory out of those uh, container loads and kits them and then delivers it into the into the factory every five hours. So they're smoothing out that, that uh, flow. And when you say factory, I mean, is, is some of the, is there... Is this uh, to some degree modular where you're pre-assembling and then going and installing on site? Or are you referring to the construction site as quote unquote factory? Um, we're doing both. Uh, so the precast concrete, so giant beams and columns and stuff are all poured and cast off site and delivered. Uh, wall panels now are done in a, fa- a little factory that takes Coils of steel in one end and produces completed exterior wall panels out the other. And they drop them in place on site like Lego bricks. And so I see more of it heading that direction where it's done a little bit more off site. The kidding, for example, right now is all done on site. Uh, but I've got a feeling that eventually we're going to have almost a warehouse kind of distribution mm-hmm. area yeah. that takes the large loads in one end and sends out the kits out the other. Uh, just because of the physical space uh, to do that on site is very limited. Yeah. Well, and that's where, I mean, you you use the word thoughtful. You know, I think in my experience and what I've learned, it's really more about a thoughtful approach as opposed to something that's dogmatic of yeah. always this or never that, or like, you know, the, the the world is complicated. There's gray area and there's the the dynamics where your business is very different than uh, Toyota's. And you've got this question of of how, how to adapt to your business. And I, I do want to point people, I should have mentioned up front. Uh, Mike was uh, previously a guest on the My Favorite Mistake podcast. And in that episode, um, I don't think we need to repeat all of that here you, uh, about what's different about Norhart and, and some of the model. And you know, maybe you can touch on that as we talk more of, of the lean stuff, if that's okay with you, Mike. But yeah. the question I, I usually ask people right up front, we got in some details here. You know, you, what's your lean or TPS origin story? Like you, Mike, and then... You know, you meaning Norhart. Maybe that lines up one and the same. 
Yeah. So I think in some ways we were thinking lean before I knew what lean was. Uh, you know, growing up, my dad uh, and my parents started the business. It was really scrappy, right? We were just kind of figuring things out on our own, like experimenting, trying new ways to do things. But that helped lower costs during that time. And then as you grow, the scrappy methodology doesn't work very well. And you've got to <laughs> apply new techniques, right? And learn yeah. as you go. But I think kind of my dad passing and me taking over, not knowing what I'm doing, was again, partly, I didn't know it at the time, but lean thinking. Like, how do we just solve the problems in front of us to be as efficient as possible? Um, but what really kicked off lean for me in a more meaningful way was I was speaking at a conference and uh, uh, the head of TSSC happened to be there. And uh, we ended up connecting and talking. And he said, dude, like we've been wanting to spread lean into the rest of the world in different areas. And specifically, they were looking to do it in the world of construction. And so we just hit it off. And uh, they ended up coming out here working with us. We've been out there a number of times as well. And it's been a really great partnership because I think there's a lot of principles of lean that you can read and learn from a book. There's mm-hmm. something deeper about like sitting beside someone looking at the same kind of problem and watching them think it through mm-hmm. that I've learned yeah. so much from working with them. And then how much of their style is them helping you and your company think things through? Like I've seen videos where they go into hospitals and the hospital people say um, they didn't fix it for us. They taught us how to improve it. Like when they worked with a, a soup a soup kitchen. You know, that, like there's this common theme. So this is a leading question. I shouldn't ask a question. I think I know the answer to. But tell, <laughs> but tell us about how like they work with you to teach you as opposed to fixing you. Yeah, they certainly don't come in and just fix the issues because what they find, and this is, I could totally see it, is that they leave and everything reverts back to the old way, right? Nothing really changes. And so you really are working on culture change, not just a tool or technique. And that's one thing they've really hounded in me is it's it has nothing to do with the tools, right? It's about changing the mindset of the people working on these different tasks and yourself as a leader. Um, so we've specifically worked on like one little task <laughs> together, solving that one thing. And we're watching that and then we're trying to apply that to the rest of the company. I think one interesting insight uh, that happened recently, so we had all the executives from TSSC come out recently kind of a big update and one of the main guys uh pulled me aside for half an hour and sat down and, and talked with me and he he said one really important lesson that I didn't deeply understand is that in order to change the fundamental culture I had to change the way I was thinking and about looking at lean and so I I firmly believe in it I was involved with it I was out on site on different parts of it but where I was failing is that I wasn't doing my daily or weekly or bi-weekly walks to the factory, the different sites. And the reason that was a fail is because that wasn't, because doing that inspires your other leaders to be doing that same thing and it goes down the chain. And so we talked a lot about how it starts with me and I've got to ask the right questions. I got to present myself in the right way and make it really clear that as an organization, this is a priority to see change in. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate you sharing. I mean, I think another good habit that you're demonstrating here, like you did in the episode of My Favorite Mistake, is being willing to share and admit a mistake or a failure or a gap or something that you 
we're working on. Hopefully then that flows through and inspires other people to have that same sense of reflection and continuous improvement on their own. Yeah. If you think you know it all, or if you get in this mindset of like, I can't admit to mistakes, you know, I, I get why a lot of people go there because it's hard. It's hard to feel that way. It's hard to admit to where you're at. But if you're failing at that level, like you've got a deeper level you have to fix first before you can even get to lean, right? Because right, you've got to be right. really honest about where you're at. And the truth is, whenever we start something new, we're always terrible at it. That's human right. nature, right? right? We're born right. that way. We can't walk. Yeah. We can't talk. We can't add. And so being comfortable in your own skin that, hey, I am not perfect. Hi, I'm Mike, and I have problems <laughs> is an important first step to seeing real growth and improvement. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure that's happening. I mean, you, you you talk about wanting to revolutionize the way things are done, trying to be innovative. That's going to lead to trying things that don't work out as you would have thought or would have hoped. Like, how do you help view that as an opportunity for learning as opposed to something that um, leads to punishment? Yeah, you know, for me, that starts an orientation where we actually talk about that very thing. Because one of the scary thing about a culture that focuses on hiring the best is, well, does that mean if I make a mistake, you're just going to let me go? Ah, we address yeah. that very point in orientation. Oh, say, no. Like, think about it for a moment. How do we decide who to hire and to fire? Their values. Is there anywhere in our values that say that if you make a mistake, you're going to be fired? No. No. In fact, it's, it's completely the opposite. We, we look for people that are challenging the status quo, that are willing to change things. As a result of that, that means you will fail at trying new things. Failure is not bad. In fact, if you were not failing, I'm a bit concerned that you're not really trying. Right, right. Well, and but you can see where people, if they've worked in other workplaces, yeah. they may hear of like the best means, you know, quote unquote, the best means never makes mistakes. And, but it's great that you address that head on. It seems like you've learned to even anticipate (laughs) or bring that up proactively of, of, of what that culture means um, there at Norhart. Um, I want to ask you one other question, just um, about the approach of working with um, TSSC. You, you you mentioned earlier, what matters is problem solving. Uh, You think of John Shook, formerly of Toyota loves asking, what problem do we need to solve? Like there's that very strong orientation. Um, David Meyer, former Toyota guy who is running his distillery in Kentucky. You know, when I visited him, he said point blank, he's like, oh, people visit me and say, why aren't you doing 5S? And he's like, no, it's just, I'm trying to solve the most important problem that's in front of me in my business. It's all about problem solving. I'm kind of paraphrasing him. So the question is like, how did how did they help you frame or scope out or choose the initial problem, like something that was meaningful enough, a good challenge, maybe not too big. But I'm just curious, like, how do you decide what the starting point is? Yeah. First I'll mention just with problems is you're exactly right. In fact, I often tell our team, we have 10,000 problems. Problems are not a bad thing. People see a lot of problems like, dude, I'm failing. That's not the case. The challenge is always to have enough problem solvers to handle the problems as they come in. But if we had no problems, then we're not growing and I'm not pushing the organization well enough. Uh, the way that we decided to move forward with TSSC um, was we just picked 
probably one of our biggest bottlenecks in the overall construction chain. And for us at the time, it was framing and wall assembly. And so that was just a very specific window that we could see the most meaningful impact within the organization. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that idea of choosing the bottleneck, like there's a time and a place for that. It seems like that strategic focus while also like in parallel, or once you've developed, you know, some, some capabilities as, you know, it says on your website, and you've already mentioned 10,000 problems, solving 10,000 little problems. Like how, how do you help that coexist of, you know, having to be strategic on maybe some of the bigger problems while encouraging people to work on all the small ones? So we have a team that helps initiate kind of the lean stuff in the organization. They're working on the framing, the wall panels. They're now expanding to a number of other teams to provide support and driving that down. Um, but the the energy about solving problems and changing that culture, like that doesn't have to wait for any team to come work with you on. And so one of the things I learned from, um, I'm reading the author's name, but the Two Second Lean book. Uh, Paul Akers. Paul Akers, yeah. His, yeah. One of his insights that was really useful to us was to have the teams make a lean video. So literally every week, all the different teams produce another video of something that they've made their own little improvement within their team on. And they share it off on, on the team, the, the company-wide team meetings. And they have like a, an a MBA bracket. So they're all cheering for each other. And they usually make them a little bit funny. So they're a lot of fun. It's like a culture building thing as well. But it's really reinforcing every single week. Do we actually have to think about ways to improve? So, I mean, it comes through very clearly, you know, this orientation around mission and purpose and culture and values, all of that being more uh, important than tools. Um, you know, there, there's there's so much, and I'll encourage people, I'll put a link on the website, um, so much great stuff on the Norhart website about, you know, culture and, and what you're growing and what you are, um, you know, how, how it's evolving. We did touch on this in uh, my favorite mistake podcast, but I want to ask you again for, for this audience here around um, the values of transparency, mm-hmm. as you describe it being open, honest, and vulnerable, and um, sharing employee survey responses out there, not on the intranet, but on the internet where uh, someone like me, I could, you linked to it. I wasn't spying, like it was there. For me to go take a look, and I did. Like, tell us about the the thought process of um, of, of of being so transparent. Yeah, so we we share all of our employee survey results openly to the public. You should go and look at that on our website. And uh, it's not all pretty, right? It's the good, bad, and the ugly. The comments are all in there. <laughs> and the reason we do that is because I don't want to be fake good. Mm-hmm. Right, I think a lot of leaders want to like, gloss over it and be like, "Yeah, we're really, really good." Well, that's not what your people say, <laughs> right? I want—I'd much rather be honestly bad but working to improve than fake good, just good on the surface. And so, because being honest is the first step to growth and improvement. And so, yeah, we sh- at the at the uh, every six months we do the survey. Every six months, that's the first thing that the team hears from me is what my results were how we did as a company, what steps I'm taking to work to improve the issues that they raised. And I think that's an important iterative, continuous improvement process in order to improve the culture of your company. Mm-hmm. 
So how, do, like from your role, Mike, as CEO and other leaders that you have in different roles or different levels, how do you, how do you help ensure that the honesty is rewarded? Like this comes back to psychological safety, whether mm. it's literally pulling an and on cord in a Toyota factory or whatever mechanism you have for people to speak up and, and call out a problem. How, how do you see that part of the culture, you know, flowing from you through other leaders? <clears throat> You know, I think one of the first things is communication. Um, when I meet with the different teams, I often talk about how my favorite people to work with are the ones that respectfully, but nicely, call me an idiot, right? <laughs> say, hey, dude, we're, they're not actually going to use those words, but just call me out yeah. Yeah. and say, hey, you're not doing this right. You're not thinking about that right. If I'm working with someone and they just feel like a yes man to me, and like just nodding, agreeing with everything I say, I don't want to work with them, right? So it's almost like creating this environment, this culture, this expectation that if you're just telling me what I want to hear, then I'm you're not going to stick around very long. But if you're telling me like how everything's not doing well in a respectful, kind way, and then here's ways that you can improve it and we can get better, dude, you, I am all game. I am all yours and I'm excited to be with you. And so I think it starts with that communication and I think it, it then trickles down with the the rest of the leadership. We don't always get it perfect. I know um, another piece of it is taking appropriate action. I remember we had one team that the manager was not lining up to our, our values. They were not being very respectful and kind to their team. They were very nice to managers. We had no idea. The team were newer team members. They didn't really understand the culture that we were creating. And so they were afraid to come up to upper management about the issues. We had one employee on that team quit who then shared the inside of what was going on. And uh, so they quit one day and literally the next, we got the information. We did a deep dive. So we spent a couple of days interviewing all the different team members, getting the honest feedback where things were at. We corroborated all the different examples that they gave and found out they were true. And within a couple of days, the bad manager was let go and they were actually let go before the, the employee quit. Right, so it's it's being being very um, attentive to when people actually raise issues and take action on that, so people can know that you mean business when it comes to your values. Yeah. Well, I guess today um, again, Mike Kading, um, the CEO of uh, Norhart. Maybe one other question, Mike. And I feel like, gosh, we're we're scratching the surface. Maybe we can do another episode, or I can come see you um, in yeah. your company someday. But you, you talked earlier, I think it was really inspiring to talk about this notion of wanting to be the best at what mm. you do as a company and individuals. Um, you've got, I think, a lot of time ahead of you as CEO and opportunity for growth. And like, what, what does it mean to you to say, well, I'm putting words in your mouth, but it seems like you want to be the best CEO. Yeah. What, what, does that, what does that mean to you? How do you make progress toward that? What a really high level. My dad died relatively young, and it really makes me realize how short life really is, right? We only live about 5,000 weeks here on Earth. And I think a lot about it, how do I want to spend the minutes I have here on Earth? And for me, I want to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact on the world. And so, like, getting a ton of money, like, who cares? They're going to shovel $100 bills in your grave? Like, what point is that? Or even being known as a great CEO, like that is not something I'm striving for either. I'm really striving for what is the impact I can positively make on other people's lives. And I'm trying to 
optimize for that. And to do that in a powerful way requires us to become best in the world at what we do. And so that's the heart and spirit behind trying to become the very, very best. Well, I appreciate you sharing, you know, some of your story and, and, you know, your openness and willingness to learn yeah. from TSSC and helping other, um, everyone else there lead the way. Um, so thank you for spending um, some minutes out of one of your weeks, you know, here with us. Um, I think it's been enjoyable and, and meaningful uh, for, for me and the audience and, and Mike, hopefully the same for you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, great talking to you again. I hope people will check out the My Favorite Mistake episode. I'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, I'm, I'm glad we could have you here as well, Mike. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks. Well, thanks again to Mike Kading for joining me here today. Please do check out his episode of My Favorite Mistake. I think you'll enjoy that too. Don't forget to look for links in the show notes, or you can go to leanblog.org slash 486 to learn more about Mike and Norhart. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.